Welcome back to the Cold War. If you don't know why I played that, then go back and listen to the last episode. Please. Cold War 48. We're on the Juchu train. At the end of the last episode, Hitler made some speeches, basically using... Using the British uh, oppression of the Jews on behalf of the Arabs. Sorry, fuck. The British oppression of the Arabs on behalf of the Jews <laughs> right. as propaganda points about, look, yeah. see, this is what happens with the Jews. And uh, the British, under Neville Chamberlain and the Woodhead Commission, uh, basically decided this whole partition thing wasn't going to work or they were going to move it around and change it, reduce the amount of land that the... Jews were given right. and also reduced the levels of Jewish immigration to only 75,000 over the next five years. The Zionists were shocked. As you said, right. basically everything they'd been working for for decades yes, about to fall. looked like it was yeah all going to fall apart. The British had turned their back on the idea of a national home for the Jews, uh, had basically surrendered to Arab violence and intimidation at a time when, of course, this is at the end of the 30s, mm-hmm. the uh, Jews in Europe are having the worst time of it right. that they've had in decades. And uh, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. And so they claimed what the British were saying was actually illegal under the terms of the mandate that they had been given by the League of Nations and they vowed to fight against the British tooth and nail. Yeah, and they're not wrong. It does go against the mandate, but you've got the British Empire versus a couple of hundred thousand Jews in Palestine surrounded by their enemies. So they can fight it, but they better be smart about it because the odds aren't looking good for them. Well, they weren't the only ones who rejected the New Deal. The AHC also rejected it. Stupid. Uh, they insisted, well, they insisted on zero immigration. Um, now, you can say, as you have done, that real politics says, well, you've got to accept some losses and, and try mm, and take your baby wins. Baby steps. But yeah. they, were, they were sticking to their guns. No, this is our land. There's already a couple of hundred thousand Jews here. No more Jews in our land. Yeah. Their slogan was the English to the sea and the Jews to their graves. God damn. Which <laughs> That's pretty intense. Slightly aggressive, uh, you know, uh, probably right. may not have right. may not have been the most delicate of slogans, but you know, they get the point across, uh, I mean, which is what slogans well, are for. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there was a stalemate, right? Uh, in terms of the British trying to come to a, a happy agreement with the Zionists and the Arabs. And meanwhile, Jewish immigration and land sales continued in Palestine, although, as we will see, they were somewhat reduced, but they did continue. Yeah. And the Arab leadership 
had basically been destroyed during the crushing of the revolt in 1938 and 1939. They, they'd either been killed right. or, or imprisoned or deported to paradise uh, where they were smoking ganja and inventing reggae. And more and more, the Palestinian Arabs were relying on their Arab neighbours for political and military support and leadership. So this is where the surrounding Arab nations get more and more involved increasingly yeah. in the plight of the Palestinian Arabs. And, and, and they're hearing the things that uh, Hitler's saying. They're actually liking it. On the other side of that, I mean, we've already mentioned that the Jewish economy through all of this is pretty much doing pretty well. The uh, the Arab economy sucks right now, but the um, the more immigrants that are coming into uh, Palestine, the Jewish immigrants, they're actually helping them. And some of them that they're that are coming over have specialized skill. the uh, The Jews are they've got um, they have got factories set up making armored sheeting for vehicles and grenades. They're developing mortars and mortar bombs. The point is the Haganah, the Jews through all of this, because the, the politics seem to change like every couple of minutes. It's got to be very frustrating. But as far as boots on the ground, these people are gathering, they're getting ready for war, whether it's against the Arabs, against the British, against whoever, they are getting themselves ready to defend themselves. They don't want to have to rely on anyone. Yeah, and on the flip side, from an economic perspective, yeah. whilst the Jews were relatively unharmed economically during the revolt, the financial cost to the Arabs of the revolt was huge. Mm. Uh, thousands of Arab houses were destroyed. Oh, yeah. uh, thousands and thousands of Arabs are dead or in detention yeah. or deported. Crops and fields destroyed, uh, orchards destroyed, bombed, etc. So, you know, the... the the and markets, bombings in markets, and the effect that that had the economies oh, yeah. I mentioned in an earlier episode by the Jewish terrorist groups. So the Arabs have taken a massive hit, both in terms of leadership, uh, manpower, and and economically, they're very very weak, and the Jews are getting stronger and stronger uh, every every year, and they're now producing, as you said, their own their own weapons, their own bombs, their own armour for vehicles. So they're just getting stronger and stronger all the time. Now, when World War II broke out, the Zionists declared their support for Britain. Right. Even the ones who had been running anti-British <laughs> terrorist campaigns in Palestine declared their support for Britain. And really, I mean, what are their options? <laughs> no. Uh, listen. Hitler's my man. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. look, uh, yeah, honestly, we've been looking at the British and the Nazis side by side. And, and um, the numbers, uh, gotta, gotta, yeah. Can yeah. I say, I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely convinced not which one of good. those I should go with. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know, you know, the, the, yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of on the fence. That's right. I'm on the fence. Yeah. I don't want to be, but uh, numbers don't lie. Uh, I am. Yeah, there was only yeah. one little tiny group. I don't know how to say it. The Lehi or the Lehi. They're they're the ones who broke away from the revisionist Irgun. They stuck to their rigid anti-British line, but they were so small in some ways they didn't matter. But you're right. The Zionists were like, okay, there's war. We have no choice. Maybe we'll get something out of this, but we have to. Except for when it comes to immigration, because that's our lifeline. We are going to toe the line and help the British as much as we can. 
And you would imagine that they thought that their continued loyalty to the British mm. would put them in good stead uh, after the war in terms of getting shit good out point. of the British. Yeah. But of course, I mean, the bottom line is they're not going to support the Nazis. So right. uh, it's, it's, it's a lay down as there that the Jews are going to support, yeah, the, the, the British. Um, for the Arabs, though, as you hinted at, I think, in the last episode, mm-hmm. the situation's a little bit tricky. Yes. I mean, the Arabs have got, obviously, no love for the British. Uh, The British, on one hand, are occupying their country without their permission. Right. And at this stage, have been doing that for 20 years, Mm -hmm. occupying their country. A generation, almost. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they're allowing the Jews to come in and take over their country and all of this kind of stuff. So the British are seen by the Arabs as oppressors, invaders, the protectors of the Zionists. And who's getting all that oil? And Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So <clears throat> the Arabs, you know, they, they, they have no love for the British. And as you indicated again in the last episode, the Nazis are against the Jews. The Arabs are against the Jews. And at least for the first few years of World War II, the Nazis were odds-on favourites to win. <laughs> yes. Yes. <clears throat> They were kicking everybody's asses. Quick smart. Um, in, yeah. It took them like 12 minutes to <laughs> invade France and take over. Hitler literally woke up one morning, had his coffee and his grapefruit, decided to invade France. By lunchtime, yeah, he, was, uh, yeah. looking at, he was looking at Napoleon's tomb and uh, taking mine? a tour of the Eiffel Tower. This is mine now? Yeah. 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 Oh, this is good. This is mine! This is good! I like I'm this one! Good day! No, this is my happy voice. <laughs> you don't want to hear my not happy voice. Anyway, Rommel actually makes it into Egypt, 80 miles into Egypt. So, yeah, for a while, this is looking like it might go. This might work out well for the Arabs. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I'm as surprised as you are. <laughs> <laughs> it was six weeks to lay France low. That's freaking incredible. But anyway. You took five years to get your wife into bed. <laughs> he only Hitler conquered France in six weeks. I mean, well, say what you I want mean, about that Hitler. says it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he knows how to get shit done. Anyway. <laughs> oh, so many inappropriate oh, things going through my mind. Well, you know, yeah. as you always say. Want to make your country great again? Get a fascist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> so from the Arab perspective, the British are a bunch of bastards. Right. The Nazis hate the Jews. The Nazis look like they're going to win. And if they win, they're going to storm the Middle yes. East. So it's good to be on their yes. side. And Italian and German fascist propaganda was promising the Arabs their independence After Britain's defeat. Look, the British defeated the Ottomans and then they just took over. If we defeat the British, we promise we won't take over. It's it's, It's your country. all yours. Yeah, yeah, we just want to help. Yeah. And and quite honestly, it's a good story when you think of it. I mean, people might laugh at that, but go back to 1939 Mm -hmm. uh, and look at the history of colonialism. Look at what's what's Italy's history of colonialism, what's Germany's history of colonialism, and what's Britain's history of colonialism. Yeah. Compare the three. Britain controlled 25% <laughs> of the world's land mass. And bragged about it. Yeah. Yeah. What did Germany control? Nothing. What did Italy control? Nothing. 
And that's and I've talked about this before on this show many, many fucking 120 episodes ago. That was why uh, the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese needed to get new territory yeah. in the first half of the 20th century because they hadn't done it earlier when it was okay. But then the British and the Americans were like, oh, sorry, no, the window yeah. of opportunity for territorial expansion is now closed. <laughs> I thought you got the memo on sorry. that. We did it. Yes, yeah. we've been doing but it, it was for 200 years. Yeah. Well, it was okay. It was legally, morally, ethically justifiable. Because <laughs> we're white. Right. Well, the Germans are also white. They're the whitest of white. That's their whole deal. Their whole deal right. is we are the whitest white people that have ever been. <laughs> so surely we... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Memo. We did send out a memo in triplicate. Yeah. You should have yeah. received that. No, my fault. Um, yeah. yeah, taking over taking over territory was okay when we did it. Right. As Richard Nixon says, well, when the president <laughs> does it, that means it must be legal. <laughs> Um, but well, when you do it, right. no, 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 it's, it's immoral, not, not okay. It's we, we have to stop you. And, and, and to prove that point, during the 1930s, the, uh, in Japan, there were posters all around Tokyo saying, don't miss the bus. Literally, as in, this is the opportunity, that, this is the example we're following, set up by England, America, and other countries, um, France and whatnot. It's our turn now. And so they were basing that completely on what they saw the European powers do, straight up. Now, sure, the Nazis were all about blue eyes and blonde hair and white skin, and the Arabs are anything but that. Don't sure, Hitler, Hitler once called Arabs half apes. <laughs> <clears throat> I was talking to some guys. It was just you know, locker room talk. It was locker, locker room talk. <laughs> it was one Nazi to another. Come on. You know how those things go. We get a little carried away with our beer. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Grab them by the pussy, <laughs> and the Arabs are all half apes. But the point is that Germany was uh, a long, long way away. The British and Good the French point. were the current oppressors of the Middle East right. in the views of the Arabs. So, you know, uh, Germany it was a long way away, and they promised they'd be nice to you, so it made a lot of sense. Now, our old friend Khalil Sakakini, right. another Japanese-sounding name. A lot of these Arab <laughs> names... Uh, sound very Japanese yeah. to me. Nashashibi and Sakanini. Right. Like if I went to I want sushi. my local my local sushi restaurant and right. I looked at the menu <laughs> you would and it that. said you can get a you can get a plate of sakakini with a little bit of nashashibi on the side. I'll, 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 have, I'll have that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't blink. I'd be like, okay. That's so right. Sure. Sounds good. I don't know what it is, but I'll have a go. I'm sure it's probably it's raw something. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's fine. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Khalil Sakinini, the Palestinian Christian Arab nationalist that we've talked right. about in earlier episodes, right. in his diary in the middle of 1941, he said that the Arabs of Palestine had rejoiced when the British bastion at Tobruk fell to the Germans. Mm. Not only the Palestinians rejoiced, but the whole Arab world in Egypt Fuck. and Palestine and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, and not because they love the Germans, but because they dislike the English because yeah. of their policy in Palestine. What's that saying you always use? The enemy of my enemy, enemy is of my, my enemy friend. is my friend. Yeah. You're currently my friend, my bitch. Yeah. So how, how could they not be happy? And, of course, during World War II, the Germans were murdering Jews in their millions. They like that too, uh, I'm sure. Well, 
yes. I mean, it wasn't well known until a certain point. Um, And Britain, while that was going on, and even after Britain found out about the Holocaust, they continued Mm -hmm. to try and halt immigration to Palestine. Ooh, that's not good. Yeah. Because because I know know that the... um, the Polish government in exile in London was would, still had agents in Poland and they were getting information about the, the mass killing of Jews. And so at some point, yeah, the British know, they know what's going on. But I think the point you were going to make was the British still have to, to a degree, appease the Arabs. They don't need that entire region blowing up when they're taking on the, the Axis powers. And so, yeah, they stick to their, I guess, promise to the Arabs, we're going to severely curtail uh, any immigration to Pal- to Palestine. Well, not severe enough for the Arabs, but yeah, True. somewhat curtail. True. Yeah. Um, now, j- during the period of 1934 to 38, about 40,000 Jews had entered Palestine illegally, mm. on average about 10,000 a year, and then another 9,000 by September of 1939. But sure. in the next six years... Right. Less than 16,000 people in total made it into oh. Palestine, only only 2,600 a year Damn. when they needed it the most. Yes. Um, oh so, God. you know, when the, like, on one hand, the British are claiming that they're allowing the immigration to... Palestine of the Zionists because the Zionists deserve a safe place. You're right. But on the other hand, when they really, really needed a safe place, the British wouldn't let them get in, or not many of them get in. Right. Now, now I'm not trying to beat up on the British here. I mean, it's a complicated situation. Sure. Uh, you know, as you said, they didn't want to uh, uh, upset the Arabs in, during the war because it could have made things a lot more difficult for them. But uh, the facts are that when... Hitler was killing millions of Jews. Uh, the British wouldn't let wouldn't let uh, even as many of them as they had let before the war right. into Palestine. And and the other part of that is I know the British are like saying, well, any kind of illegal immigration is a challenge to our latest white paper. It's a challenge to our rule of Palestine, and it's a challenge. It's you know it might disrupt the stability of the Middle in Middle East. I get that, but at some point they know or have an inkling of what's going on in Europe. Um, but I guess the the real the uh, realistic politics on the ground they have to appease the Arabs, so they stuck with that, and they have to live mm. with that decision. Now, uh, sometimes the British got quite brutal in trying to stop the Jews from getting into the country illegally. Uh, right. They at first they tried to deport them back to their countries of origin. Jesus. Um, but that was difficult uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they tried to suspend legal immigration until illegal immigration was stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, that didn't really work either. Right. Eventually what they ended up doing was calculating how many illegal uh, entries there had been and deducting that from the annual legal quota, oh. which was 15,000 people, and right. saying, well, that's it. you got your number. The number's the number. If they come in legally, they come in illegally. We're counting them all, and that's it. Trying to 
I guess, put pressure on the Zionists to stop yeah. <clears throat> uh, uh, telling people to come in illegally. Yeah. Uh, they were they were applying pressure to places like Romania and Turkey, other Balkan states, to try and stop ships from sailing. Yeah. But eventually, in the end, they decided to capture the illegals and send them to the seashells as punishment. Uh, right. <laughs> no. In fact, no, they sent them to Mauritius, another paradise. Let's right. find, look, we're running out of paradises <laughs> to send people do? to. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But I guess it's so Mauritius than, and, yeah. and Cyprus, uh, in fact, right. they were sending them to camps in... Mauritius and Cyprus and thousands of Jewish refugees ended up spending the war years and many years after the war, in fact, in right. basically concentration camps in Cyprus. Yes, which obviously was extremely politically awkward when Allied forces are going into Germany and other places and they're coming across camps not too much different than these because, yeah, the, there's just so many numbers the British have got to put them to the side. And and as we were, I think we were, you were saying earlier, the British got pretty rough about this. In November of 1940, the I tried to stop a ship. It was a, a tramp steamer that was docked in Haifa. It had more than 1,700 illegal immigrants from Romania and the British were going to send it away to uh, Mauritius. But the Haganahs, uh, we're going to put explosives on there, I guess, to damage the vessel so it couldn't be seaworthy. That's my guess. If, if you know more, Cam, let me know. But they miscalculated on the explosives. It would turn out to be a lot bigger. And they ended up killing 252 of the, of the refugees. But you could easily say they were put into that position by the British policy. So it was just ugly on all sides. Uh, <clears throat> now, during the war, al Hussaini who was still in exile, was trying to incite Arabs in Palestine to another revolt. But the British had a major army presence in Palestine during the war, and that actually meant boom times for yes. the economy. Right. Those people all need hoors and uh, <laughs> Condoms, food, hopefully. lodging. Yeah. Magnum. So... <laughs> Don't make me play. But you're right. The British Eighth Army is there. All these troops have nothing to do. They're getting their pay. They're, it's either hookers or women or food or or whatever. And so the economy there is just booming. You don't. And in the average, and the average Arab does not want to fuck that up. Fuck the revolution. Uh, yes. And uh, so he ended up joining forces with the Iraqi military, who launched oh. a rebellion in Baghdad, supported by the Axis, in April of 1941. Right. But the British jumped on that very, very quickly. Obviously, uh, yes. their oil supply line was at stake. They defeated the rebels by May. And then Hosseini fled to Berlin, <laughs> where on, he was greeted by someone yeah. from the foreign ministry, greeted him as a great champion of Arab liberation and the most distinguished antagonist of England and Jewry. Oh, God. So he gets he gets made a director in Berlin of the Arab office of uh, Germany, and his Good basic job. job is to broadcast propaganda and mobilize Arab and Muslim support for the Axis. And right. uh, you know he was later uh, he later explained why the Germans had turned on the Jews. 
He said, Mm. in return for the Balfour Declaration, the Jews filled a central role in acts of sabotage and destructive propaganda inside Germany in World War I. They acted in every way to bring about its destruction. He said that was the main reason that Hitler hated the Jews is because they had turned on Germany... Uh, in return for the Balfour Declaration. Now, I'm not aware of any evidence no. to support that, no. but that was Al Hussaini's uh, yeah. propaganda view of why the Germans hated the Jews. Well, they were trying to give it a, uh, I guess, a specific reason why, as opposed to just basic racism. But no, uh, anti-Semitism was alive and well in Germany uh, before Hitler comes along. So he's basically, I guess, like a Tokyo Rose, just spreading disinformation and propaganda and trying to, I guess, sap the morale of the enemy. All of the, all the above. Yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism was alive and well everywhere, not just True. in Germany, obviously. True. Yeah. Um, now, uh, on November the 28th, 1941, Hosseini met Hitler. Oh, nice. And, How'd that go? And <laughs> very well. <laughs> he he uh, complimented Hitler on his uniform. He said, Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Nazi sexy. And. and and uh, he said, "Look what I'm doing. This is hot. This is hot. Look at me. Ooh, ooh. Who's turned on? Who's turned on by this rope that you can't see that I'm pulling? It's my penis." Hosseini promised Hitler that he would organize a new pan-Arab revolt. Sure. Uh, against the British and the Jews. And Hitler, again, promised the Arabs post-war independence as well as the abolition of this idea of a Jewish national home. Liked what he heard and saw, including Hosseini's blue eyes and told Hosseini he must have had one Aryan among his ancestors and one who may be descended from the best Roman stock. You've got its oh, own. Really yeah, going. yeah. Don't 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 do that. Yeah, but the one I'm not thing sure I don't if think he would have taken. Yeah. Do you think? Wait. Do you think Asani took that as a compliment or an insult? I think when you're standing a foot and a half of way from Adolf Hitler, and he gives you a compliment that's not a compliment, you take the fucking compliment. You've got nothing. Everything that you've been working for is lost. You're now in Germany. You smile and oh, thank thank you, sir. That you, you you do that. You kiss his ass. Hitler actually wrote a song for Hussaini too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Blue eyes. Hussaini's got blue eyes. <laughs> like a deep blue sea. On a blue. In the desert. I mean, they really, they really did get along. Yeah. Like they used to, Hitler used to sit down at the piano, play that song to Hosseini. It's very sweet. He's got to love it. I mean, Hussaini he said, look, up. Right. Yeah. like in terms of the half apes, Hosseini was his favorite half ape. Yeah. Oh, because <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're if my I favorite half, half ape. <laughs> You're my favorite right. half ape. Yeah. He used to say, I said, no oh, question. Oh, no, oh, 
You're my favorite oh, so blue-eyed su- half ape. Love you. Come that's here, so, give me a hug. Yeah. <laughs> that's so sweet. He actually <laughs> he actually wrote another song for him. I think I'm sophisticated because I'm living my life like a good homo sapien. But all around me, everybody's multiplying and they're walking around like flies, man. So I'm no better than the animals sitting in the cages in the zoo, man. Cause compared to the flowers and the birds and the trees, I am an ape man. I think I'm so educated. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Hassani used to sing that, I'm an ape man. Um, right. Now, uh, uh, Hassani would basically spend the rest of the war years uh, fighting against the Jews uh, in Palestine and trying to support Hitler every way he could. Uh, and then, of course, in May of 1940, Churchill replaced Neville Chamberlain as Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Churchill, he never really liked the Arabs. All the Jews, quite frankly, we know that. Um, yeah, but you know, he, he he liked the Jews a little bit more than he liked the Arabs, um, and he he kept complaining about the treacherous Iraqi revolt. How dare they <clears throat> revolt against us when we divided up their country and took control of it and occupied it, and then gave them a little bit of it, but really took it's just oil. under our military. Yeah, right. it took their oil yeah. um, and, and military, you know, kept them under a military command with fake independence. Right. Um, how Bastard. dare they? Yeah, ungrateful <laughs> bastards. Never had it so good. Oh, mm. have apes. And he, he came to the opinion that Britain owed the Arabs nothing after the oh. war. Once we're done with this, fuck the Arabs. Right. They're an ungrateful bunch of apes. He and... He and Hitler got along on that subject. They well, <laughs> well, we were talking about the uh, the Arab. Um, uh, how should I put this? Enthusiasm for the early years of the war when Germany was kicking ass and taking names. You know, the British, especially Churchill, is going to remember that. And so, yeah, it's like you know what? All bets are off. Whatever happens, happens. Uh, we don't. I don't feel like we owe you anything anymore. And he's going to be in power. You know, for, obviously for most of the war. And he decided that the government's white paper that had uh, argued against partition was humiliating to the British that they had changed their minds so many times. In April 1943, he said, I cannot agree that the white paper is the firmly established policy of the present government. I have always regarded it as a gross breach of faith committed by the Chamberlain government in respect of obligations to which I personally was a party. So remember, he yeah. had been involved in the, yes. the the whole mandate and all of that kind of stuff, and he was like, no, motherfucker, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I did that deal. You can't undo the deal that I did. Right. Not without checking with the League, uh, League of Nations anyway. Meanwhile, uh, during the war, somewhere between twenty-five to 28,000 PJs, that's what I'm now calling Palestinian Jews, PJs, right. okay. were, to, were to serve in the British Army. Um, and it wasn't until September of 1944, though, that Churchill finally forced through 
his cabinet the decision to set up a Jewish brigade. Oh, God. With its own distinct blue and white flag. Well, I know that there had been talk previously about setting up two battalions in Palestine, one Jewish and one Arab, which, you know, for guard duty, which makes sense. You keep it nice and fair. You keep it nice and balanced. But the war is going on. Churchill doesn't have time to play this game. He's pissed at the Jews. September of 1944 comes around. And I think from what I can remember, what I could tell, he pretty much browbeats Whitehall to make this happen. I think some of them didn't want it to happen. But now, not only are they, you know, Churchill is, is clearly on the side. He's pissed at the Arabs. But now there's a official military unit set up. They've got their own blue and white flag. And you know the Zionists are just loving this because why? Precedents are being set. And from pretty much the very get-go, Churchill's intention uh, after the war was to establish a Jewish state. Yeah. Uh, we know this because in a secret cabinet uh, session from October 1941, he said, I may say at once that if Britain and the United States emerge victorious from the war, the creation of a great Jewish state in Palestine, mm -hmm. inhabited by millions of Jews, will be one of the leading features of the peace conference discussions. So yeah. even before the end of the war, that was Churchill's intention. Um, now, yeah. why? Uh, well, apart from the fact that he's angry at the Arabs... Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think this gets back to the whole protection of the Suez Canal deal, which was right. one of the, you know, Churchill's getting back to that idea. We need the oil yeah. in the Middle East uh, and we need a friendly power uh, in the Middle East that owes us one to help us yes. contain the Arabs, contain the oil and protect the Suez Canal. Well, we know what's going to happen to the British Empire after World War II. He doesn't, and he is very much uh, 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 an imperialist. He, he wants to do whatever he can to not only keep the empire going as long as it possibly can, but obviously do that by protecting its various pieces. And this would be a brilliant move to have an ally so close to the canal. It's just him looking after something that means so much to him, the British Empire. And then it was in July of 1942 that the Polish government in exile in London uh, reported to the British that their mm. uh, contacts, their intelligence network, had told them that 700,000 Polish Jews had already oh. been murdered. Uh, in December of 1942, Anthony Eden claimed in the House of Commons that there had been hundreds of thousands of Jewish victims. So now it's out. Uh, in yeah. May of 1942, uh, there was an extraordinary Zionist conference in New York attended by American and European leaders as well as three members of the Palestine Jewish Agency Executive. And they voted mm -hmm. for what would become known as the Biltmore Program, named after the Biltmore Hotel where they <laughs> met. Right. It called for Palestine to be established as a Jewish commonwealth in the structure of the new democratic world, and the Jewish agency was to control immigration and development of the country. And this whole immigration thing is the big sticking point that the Jews have been having with the Arabs and the British, but they're like, we're going to set this up and we are going to be in control of it. This is our goal now. 
Yeah. So, like, officially now, it was a fundamental departure from their previous position, which had always been uh, kind of, you know, we just want to get along. Back. We want to get yeah. along. It's yeah. all good. Now they're going. No, we we want a we want a Jewish nation for Jews right. that we control. This this was their official policy. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, the program for the for the Biltmore Conference was drafted by Meyer Weiskel, Weizmann's aide. Right. <clears throat> but it, it later on it, it was always um, identified with a Ben Gurion plan. Mm. It was it was sort of his vision to pull this together, and it, it called right. for Palestine to be established as a Jewish commonwealth integrated in the structure of the new democratic world. Right. The Jewish agency would have control of immigration and the development of the country, and Ben-Gurion's plan was to bring in 2 million Jews immediately. Jesus. Into We've the been country. talking 10,000 here, 15,000 there, and now he's going to... Take it to a whole new level. I guess Weitzman, who seems to be more moderate, is like, whoa, 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 that's just not, we just can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a basically a battle going on now between Ben-Gurion and Weitzman uh, for control of the future of Zionism and Israel. Right. Now, uh, in the months before the conference, both of these guys had expressed support for transferring Arabs out of the land, preferably mm-hmm. voluntary, and if they sure. wouldn't at the point of a pointy stick. <laughs> and in January of 1941, Weizmann actually met with our old friend Ivan Maisky, mm-hmm. the Soviet ambassador to London. Uh, the Zionist report on the, on the meeting says, Dr. Weizmann said that if half a million Arabs could be transferred, two million Jews could be put in their place. Damn. That, of course, would be a first instalment. What might happen afterwards was a matter for history. Weizmann said that they would be transferring the Arabs only into Iraq or Transjordan. So uh, that was their plan. A couple of million straight off and then more to follow. Millions and millions of Jews coming into the land. It would have been nice if they could have started earlier before the end of the war, but hey... I guess you do what you can. Then in October of 1941, Ben-Gurion uh, wrote a memo called Outlines of Zionist Policy. Yeah. And, you know, he said all the usual stuff about how the <laughs> Zionists would bring benefits to the Jews and they could do it without displacing any Arabs. And then he said, but like the neighbouring Arab states can easily absorb all of the Arabs. I mean, it's all Arabs and Arabs, and desert and yeah. desert. It's all, it's no, it's all the no same. big deal. Sand and ape, half apes. And if any Arabs yeah. remain in our area, of course we will treat them as equals because we're going to be a democracy. He's basically hitting all the notes that they've been saying for years. Yeah. But he also said complete transfer without compulsion and ruthless compulsion at that is hardly imaginable. Right. So he, he, you know, officially he was of the opinion that we're going to have to we're going to have to use force to get them out of the land. Right, but I, I read that as 
and maybe I read it wrong, but I, I read that as he was trying to be subtle. Look, if the British want to say transfer by force or if the American authorities want to do that, that's fine. I don't think we should come out and say it. But if they say it, we'll be like, yeah, OK, if you think that's best. But I don't think they wanted to be seen as the bad guy in this equation as, as best they could. Yeah, he said uh, the Jews should not discourage other people, British mm. or American, who favour transfer from advocating this course, but we should in no way make it part of our program. So he's saying, look, it's going to have to happen, right? but we just won't talk about it officially, publicly, so the finger can't be pointed at us. Right. We'll be like, hey. Good point. You know, hey. my name's Paul, and this is between y'all. Like, it's, it's the British, the Brits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, go talk to them. Yeah, yeah. I just benefit nothing yeah. to do with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, if they yeah. take your house and give it to me, yeah. Don't don't get mad don't at, look me. at me. Don't get bitching. No, at me. I. Yeah. That, it was a gift to yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, Go I talk don't. To him. Why did they? Why did they give it to me? Oh, you'd have to ask them. I don't, I don't know. know. I'm, I'm just as surprised no. as you are. Go talk to the yeah, guy shocked. with the bayonet over there, right yeah. there. Um, yes, and with the Arabs that stayed in the Jewish state, he said they would be treated as equals, even yeah. though Uh-oh. our country may suffer from the presence of a considerable illiterate and backward population, oh. and so may our relations with the neighbouring Arab countries. Oh, elitist. So anyway, this gets yeah. pushed through as right. now the official policy of the Yeshuv. Damn. So as of... Well, 1941, I guess, uh, a a Jewish state where Arabs are removed by force is now publicly what Zionism is all about. But this set off controversies inside the Zionist movement. Um, And some were protesting because they weren't getting the whole thing. They wanted God. not just some of Palestine. They wanted the whole thing. Yeah, you're not, you're not going hard enough. <laughs> Others, like Weizmann, as you said, wanted to downplay the whole statehood thing. He was a little bit more moderate than Ben Gurion, right. and it led Patient. to a political showdown between Ben Gurion and Weizmann. Yeah, so you, you've got the uh, balls to the wall, Ben Gurion. You've got the more, I don't know if you want to call him more realistic or moderate or more patient, Wiseman. But yes, yeah, so suddenly there are cracks within the Zionist hierarchy. Um, but, and, and uh, this is not good or bad. I'm not pointing fingers, but Ben Gurion has got his own plan. He, he knows what exactly what he wants, and he's willing to do almost anything to get that. So now it's time for a little bit of political trickery. So he um, he resigns in October of 1943 as the chairman of the Jewish Agency Executive. So and his goal was to put pressure on, to, on, on Wiseman to either take up his idea or leave office. So he's kind of putting this man on the spot by him being a very prominent, well-known, and everybody knows what he's going after by by. Walking off the stage, it's now up to Wiseman. What are you going to do now? Yeah. Um, in the end, Ben-Gurion won. Um, now, you know, Weizmann had always basically been about the European Jews. All they right. were his constituency. They were his power base. But they are Ooh. all gone now. Yes. Ben-Gurion's yes. political base was in Palestine. That's where he was strongest. 
Now, getting, I want to mention something. I remember we were talking about yeah. the terrorist Jewish organisations, the Jewish terrorist organisations that were blowing up markets with milk cans full right. of TNT. And shrapnel. You know yeah. who in... You know, you know that. Remember who who came up with the formula for the TNT was Weizmann. Yes. Oh my God. Weizmann was Mister TNT. Right. So uh, it was good Jewish TNT that they were using to <laughs> the uh, best blow up the markets. The best, the best Jerry. Jerry. The best. <laughs> Jeez, the world. It's <clears> ironic. <throat> yeah. So Ben Gurion, at this point in the early forties, has taken over the Zionist movement with his hardline stance on. A Jewish state. Yes. Now, uh, when the British had their victory in North Africa in October 1942, and then the Russians had victories in Stalingrad and the Caucasus later on that year, pushed the Germans out. Uh, it, it, it sort of dispelled the German threat to the Middle East, mm. and Britain was in control, you know, safer with their control of the Middle East, but they continued to appease their, the Arabs in the region. Right. They didn't want to rock the boat before the war was won. So they played down the whole Zionist statehood policy thing. Smart. And, of course, as we've mentioned a few times, like the war had underlined the importance of oil coming out of the region for the, the future of the world, so they needed to keep the Arabs who controlled those regions on good terms. Mm. They also saw the region as a market for Western goods and services later on. And, of course, towards the end of the war, there's a huge surge of sympathy for the Jews as the the scale of the Holocaust becomes publicly known, starts leaking out of Europe. Jeez. The news that Hitler's engaging in mass murder of the Jews in it it becomes impossible to argue uh, that the Jews are in need of a sanctuary somewhere. Yeah. And and how awkward can it be for Churchill and the British government knowing that they kept the Jews out of Palestine for those years of the war when tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions more could have been saved if they had let them in, but they didn't for obviously their own reasons. But the point is it's still got to be politically awkward at the very least for the British. And it wasn't just the British not letting him into Palestine, as we've talked about on earlier episodes. True. There was this major conference led by FDR, kicked off by FDR. Um, It was named after a mineral water. That's all I can remember. What was the conference? Can you recall? Um, Evian. The Evian conference. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I always just think mineral water. Evian. Right. Yeah, in 1938, um, you know, they were talking about where they could send Jewish refugees in pretty much the whole world, except a couple of uh, quite small countries. Well, like, Jews coming to our country? No, thank you. No. No, We don't need that. No, I don't think so. No. You hear what Hitler said, they'll take over. No, I don't. don't Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, it's fine for them to take over Palestine. We're all for that's that. Because that's over there. Uh, yeah. As the, Austral- the Australian delegate to the conference, T.W. White, and he said, just right. pay attention to my surname if you ever have any questions about my policy. <laughs> any questions? <clears throat> no? Yeah. No. Uh. No? Okay. He said, as we have no real racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one. To which the 
Indigenous Australians said, oh, really? There's no racial problem in Australia? Really? Really? He's like, shut up, darkies. No one asked you. Look at my surname. Go back into the outback or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. No real racial problem. Well, there wasn't because we... We killed them all, basically. Them. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's right. No real racial <laughs> problem because they'd been killed. So it's not a problem. It was a problem. Oh, then, we, right. then we killed them. Uh, so there's not a problem. I don't right. know what's so hard to understand about this. It makes perfect sense to me, well, he let, said. Let me ask you this. So 1938, 1939... Not quite, maybe early 1940. I mean, would you really expect or or think it was feasible or possible or, or whatever, something like the Holocaust? I mean, of course, the, the British and other people are going to find out about it as word slowly gets out. But maybe at first it was like no one would expect that Hitler would try to kill millions and millions and millions of Jews just because on that scale it hadn't been done before. But I guess, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to find a way to... To, to understand it better, but it, it doesn't take away from the fact that everybody said, no, we don't want them here before and during the war. I guess nothing really excuses and, it. And I, and I recall from our previous episodes on the Evian conference, Hitler said at the time the conference was going on, I will pay to send the Jews to any country that will have them. I oh, will shit. provide the shipping and the resources... Right. You just give me an address. Tell me where to drop them off. I'm like the Jew Uber. Nope. I will. I <laughs> no will. No boxes. Right. I, <laughs> I will drop the Jews off anywhere you want, anywhere right. in the world. You just, just tell me, tell me yeah. where you want them. And the world yeah. said, yeah, not our fucking problem, Adolf. You come Jesus. up with your own fucking solution. Right. I, we suggest... Adolf, you come up with the some the final solution for the Jews because uh, that ain't sending them to our that countries is not the solution. Yeah, your right. problem. Come up with a final solution, Fuck. and um, so he did. <sighs> yes, but yes, no, I agree with you. Like, I don't think <clears throat> anybody had uh, really a- any idea that. I mean, pogroms had obviously happened, but uh, yeah. Not on that. Six, seven yeah. million Jews dead. I mean, I, I, I think the the mass industrial revolution scale uh, execution of Jews in one spot, right. uh, non-combatants uh, like that, probably um, was unthinkable to everybody. Right. Like to to give all these other countries. Um, their fair due when they were at the Evian conference where they were saying, well, we're not going to take them. They didn't yeah. think that Hitler was going to execute them all. Uh, I'm sure. Right. But there you go. Mm. Well, look, I think that's um, sort of where to wrap it up mm-hmm. uh, a little bit short, but we went a little bit long in the last one. I'm out of my notes, but of course uh, the Zionists wanted the, the hundreds of thousands of Jewish survivors to yes. uh, make their way to Palestine and the rest of the world was not in a position to really say no. Yeah, how do you... You can't. Yeah, after all that... The, not, not the immoral, moral authority, but the moral 
something. How do you say no to the Jews who have suffered all of this? No matter how you feel about them, you can't say no. And while I would have preferred that the world carved out half of Germany and gave that Mm -hmm. to the Jews instead and said, okay, you get this now, I can understand it that the Jews may not have wanted to stay in a place like that. Right. But... On the flip side, the Palestinians didn't want the Jews to come and take their country either and didn't do anything to deserve that. Uh, yeah, Churchill may disagree, but um, oh, it's I an don't injustice. think, it's a, it's a, it's I don't think the Palestinians deserve that. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, there's, there was no good answer. But I think, I, you know, I still think the best answer would have been carving out a big chunk of Germany. Yeah. I think that would have been the most moral and ethical thing to do for all considered. Okay, the Jews wouldn't have liked it, but they would have, they would have dealt with it. There are Jews living in Germany now who, yeah, who they would have made can it deal with it. So, right, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, uh, it was a bit like the trolley problem. I mean, there's no happy solution to yeah. this, but the, Doing the best least amount of the utilitarian, the least amount of. <clears throat> damage, I think, would have been to just carve out a big chunk of Germany right there and then. Right, okay. If you're gonna if you're gonna aggressively, well, they partitioned Germany anyway. Yeah. They should have just partitioned it in a way that made it available for the Jews. Yeah. And moved all of the Germans out instead of moving Palestinians out. Moved the Germans out. And you, yeah, you go look for a new home. Say, yeah. Yeah. Although, of course, and again, I, I don't want to blame every German for the Nazis. I mean, as True. we've talked about before, and I talk about in my book, I'm sure there were plenty of Germans. Like, there were plenty of Americans that don't agree with Trump. There were plenty of Germans that didn't agree with Hitler. Right. And were powerless to do anything about it. It's not like you could go and protest or you could vote uh, him out or, you know, uh, start a podcast and bitch, <laughs> and bitch about it. <laughs> Exactly. Um, Doing the best you can. uh, You know, yeah. In terms of who has responsibility for what happened to the Jews, I think the Germans carry far more responsibility than uh, the Palestinians. Yeah. But um, I acknowledge that it's not an easy, not an easy solution. And because the Zionists were the Zionists at the time had already established themselves. In Palestine, they had a plan, they had support. It was the easiest, quickest yeah. thing to do is to fuck over the Palestinian Arabs yeah. and just give the Jews carte blanche. And they, and the Jews did well. The Zionists played a masterful hand and a lot of setbacks brilliantly. And even though they didn't want the Holocaust, they used that to their advantage as well. Ben-Gurion, who was a... Firebrand is now in charge, and he's going to get what the Zionists have been wanting since, what, the 1880s or 60s or whatever it was. Yeah. 1880s. All right. Well, that is the show. Um, I don't know where we're going to go next time. I don't know if we keep going into the 48 war or if we take a break. I think we take a break. I think we take a break. I think we made the point we wanted to make. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was, what was the point we wanted to make? Um, well, part of it was just, um, God, going back to day one when we started doing the podcast, there's no all good guys or all bad guys. It's not like everything you read in the news. You, you can say something about the Jews and that doesn't automatically mean you're anti-Semitic. There are reasons to charge them with cruelty 
and stuff they've done in the past and they and the stuff they've done with uh, today. But uh, maybe the entire situation in the Middle East makes a little bit more sense now because the entire situation was fucked up. I don't know. Fuck. It's just the way things are. Deep. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I'll post on our Facebook group, ask people for suggestions about yeah. what we should do next, next and get some input and you and I can talk about it. But uh, yeah. I think we'll take a break. You know, we, we've sort of we've, – we've, Sort of done a uh, what, 40, 51, 40, World War Two, 45, 65 year time frame how the Jews got control of a big chunk of Palestine. Right. Um, that's, I wanted to understand that myself a little bit better. How did the Jews get control of the country? And I think we, I mean, there's more to come, obviously, the different right. wars, et cetera, that we'll probably cover at different stages. But um, I think we've we've established uh, quite um, well the the timeline of events. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next time with something else. Uh, D back people. Peace. Bit of a kite. Nailed it! Let's kill our way to freedom. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. It's <laughs> hard. I'm just hard, but I, I take it. I'm hard. I have a poster of Jesus holding a Glock and it's turned to the side. There's nothing more inspirational than that, my friend. I am so hot and bothered right now. I probably shouldn't say that because I'm in trouble. Okay, we don't have racism anymore, but back then, a lot of racism. Let's see if I can make this make sense.